Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And we're going to take a little pause from our food, clothing, shelter, and work series that we've been doing to talk about essentially what the bishop's response was um, to all of the sexual abuse issues that were happening, not just in the church, but around the world. So, Father, I'm going to let you introduce this and and kind of inform us all upon what's going on. Uh, yeah, thanks for bringing up the topic. It's obviously a, a pressing question for people, and rightly so. And it's uh, you know something that requires some real reverence because there is really nothing more horrific than than using abusing innocent children. And so, so the church in the United States has had some waves of revelation that that's happened even within her ranks. And that uh, in the 80s and in the 90s, and then there was a major uh, breaking open in 2002 with the Boston Globe and uh, the whole Boston scandal. And then that led the bishops to meet in 2002 as a as a, a body and to pass some restrictions or, or some policies on how to handle that as an as a nation as a bishops conference covering the whole nation and and took very strict policies that got a little bit of reaction from Rome at first because it could really end up being an injustice toward priests that for any accusation, a priest would be moved, removed from ministry. And then it wasn't clear how the adjudication would take place, you know, wanting to make sure that a priest would have a fair trial so that not just anybody can accuse a good priest who didn't actually do anything and then end up taking him out of ministry. So there was a little bit of pushback, but in the end, the severity of the problem, of the potential problem, was such that the adoption at the Dallas meeting of the bishops, so it's known as the Dallas Charter, was basically adopted by the Holy See and then really spread as a standard throughout the world. So the the U.S. bishops and the U.S. church took a policy towards sexual abuse, which is really one of the strongest and most comprehensive and made a significant impact and, and was a, a real shift. Prior to that, for various reasons, uh, one being that people just didn't even want to think about it or talk about it and didn't want to imagine that some of the things were taking place that were being reported as taking place. Uh, things were dealt with quietly, dealt with internally. There was some hope, well, you know, that it's a major problem. We'll take care of those who have been abused. And and the church has paid out a lot of money and put out a lot of services and really spent time with with people uh, and has taken that seriously for a long time, not just since 2002. But then with the priest, maybe some treatment and see how things go. And then in some cases, he was assigned back to ministry after having been told by psychologists, well, he's okay now. We worked through the fundamental issues and he's ready. He's not going to hurt people. And of course, what we know from the, you know, the Boston Globe uh, story, Spotlight was the movie that came out and uh, more recently to highlight some of the, uh, the atrocities. I mean, we just, we can't use... We, we can't uh, speak too severely about it. It really is an atrocity. I mean, a couple of these priests who 
serially abused children and were reassigned and got treatment and all of this stuff. And so, uh, so anyway, in 2002, there was a, a major response by all of the bishops setting standards. I mean, also, I'll tell you, like, things move so slowly in the church. But in this case, after that decision was made in 2002, it was a little negotiated over a couple of months in Rome to kind of validate what the bishops had decided to do. And then in every diocese in the United States, there was a child protection line installed, a child, a child abuse uh, uh, victim coordinator who was put in place, a lay board of review to handle cases so that it wouldn't just be church, internal church politics. There were, I mean, in every diocese, like we don't ever respond that comprehensively about anything. I mean, it really is, it, it should be recognized and appreciated, but uh, then uh, 15 years, and then we've, we've had all of these background checks, you know, to do anything in the church, you need a background check. We had, uh, knowing that child abuse predators are subtle and skilled in terms of developing trust, grooming children, and uh, abusing, they're also all volunteers in the church were shown uh, some videos, given some instruction on how do you recognize people like this. New standards were put in place. You know, adults should never be alone with children uh, that are not their own without the parents there or without another adult present. And really a major shift in, in the culture of ministry and um, and was, you know, I, I remember it very well. I was uh, just making solemn vows at that time in the monastery. I was getting ready to be ordained a deacon. And I was uh, very sensitive to the kinds of sh shifts that were taking place. I mean, the, to be aware of never being alone with a child. I mean, I, I don't have these issues. You know, why should I be worrying about this? Well, we're establishing a new culture to be overly conservative, we might say, overly protective, because the children are worth that. And so uh, that was a shift, and, and we all went through that. Well, uh, we've been doing that very faithfully in the church for the last 17 years, and then uh, a new, well, this is following the United States, a number of other countries started having revelations that they also had issues. Now, just to take a step back, child sexual abuse is a huge problem in every corner of our society, wherever there are children who are trusting adults. And in fact, the greatest incidence of child sexual abuse or child abuse in general is in the family. And, and whether it's parents or uncles, or grandparents, or the greatest incidents by far is in the family, where, where children are, are so helpless and, and need to be trusting, and people abuse that trust. And so um, we shouldn't just think we're focusing on the church, but it's really the church responding to it that's so significant. Now, uh, priests, it, it is horrific. Those who are ordained, especially to protect the little ones, abusing their authority to actually abuse the little ones is horrific and we should be sickened by that there's no question about that but to just to recognize you know child sexual abuse is a huge problem and then you look in in the school system or you look in the the boy scouts girl scouts you look in these different areas where adults are being put in charge of children and uh anyway well and then the 
the Sandusky case, you know, is kind of close to home with Penn State. I went to Penn State, so I guess it's especially close to home. The the guy who exposed some of it is a guy that I knew at Penn State. And so, uh, of course, the problem is much broader than the church, but the church really maybe too slowly. And, you know, there can be lots of criticism for how things unfolded, but certainly in 2002, took a major, major response to the issue and really changed the culture and put significant things in place, invested a ton of resources in making sure that we can make the church the safest place in the world for children, which it should be. So, but as I say, after the United States made that response, uh, Rome also took some response, but then other countries, I mean, Ireland had a big uh, recognition of child sexual abuse problems. And then uh, we saw more recently in, in Chile, there were some revelations in Honduras. There are some things or in Germany, things started coming out and anyway, in one country after another. And then there was a kind of new wave that emerged in August of 2018 with the Pennsylvania grand jury report and, uh, which really exposed, I mean, it went all the way back to 1950 or something like that. It was 70 years worth. So it was exposing a lot of things that were already exposed. Now, it told stories and it it went deeper into some of the issues, Went opened up some more of the details, um, also blurred some things. You know, I mean, 300 victims or 1,000 victims and 300 uh, predators were was a common statistic that was given over the last 70 years in Pennsylvania, that's already taken out of context. That's out of how many people and that's out of how many priests, but then also a lot of those 300 uh, priests and thousand victims are not really proven cases. They were anyway, it gets real blurry, but there were certainly some extreme things that were there and reasons to be horrified (laughs) at some of the stuff that took place. And, and in some cases was not adequately handled. That's based on standards prior to 2002, but even some things since 2002 that were not handled like they should have been. And so it created a new wave, which also became a, a, a new trend in uh, attorney generals that now in New York and in Illinois and a number of other states, this kind of investigation is going to happen. But another thing emerged that not only those who committed these crimes, but also those who covered up these crimes. And that's where a shift in attention came toward the bishops who covered up some of these things. And that became a dimension that wasn't fully handled in the 2002 in the Dallas Charter and there's a good reason for that, not just because the bishops didn't want to, you know, wanted to exclude themselves, but because the bishops don't have authority to discipline other bishops. That's just part of the structure of the church. And so where it's a matter of church discipline, now, if people need to go to jail, I mean, that's a whole other issue. But uh, in terms of church discipline, a, a bishop can't cause another bishop to be removed from ministry. So if there's an accusation against him, it's not like, you know, one of the U.S. bishops can say to another one, you need to step down. Uh, He just doesn't have that authority. The only one who can discipline bishops is Rome, is the Vatican. That's just the the nature of the structure of our church. So 
the, the attention was raised by the Pennsylvania grand jury report. Well, what if the bishop is the one who is the problem? And that came out especially strongly with, with Theodore McCarrick. I won't call him cardinal or archbishop because he has now, through a, a judicial process, been stripped of everything. He's Mr. McCarrick, uh, which is pretty extreme, but justifiably so because of the teens that he abused, also because of the seminarians that he abused. And that opens up a whole other issue that, if I remember, we'll return to. But anyway, with the McCarrick issue coming out, uh, that a bishop and even a cardinal has done these things, and there's nobody who has the authority to discipline him except the Holy See. Does the Holy See have adequate processes in place? Is there a threat against people? Do they feel free to report? You know, if a seminarian is being accused or uh, abused by the bishop, who does he tell that to? You know, where's the hotline for that? And and what protects him against repercussions from that? Does that mean that he's not going to be a priest or should he just you know, keep it quiet and endure it and just go somewhere else because, you know, so those kinds of issues started to be dealt with because of the McCarrick case and then the cover-up issues because of the grand jury case and what emerged as a, a kind of lacuna, significant one, from the 2002 Dallas Charter was that how do you handle cases where the bishop himself is the problem? And so the U.S. bishops uh, really raised that question, brought that to Rome about the McCarrick case, and then at the same time made the uh, commitment, just like they did in 2002, now to handle accountability and transparency for bishops. They took that on. There's only so much that the U.S. bishops can do because of the structure of the church that only Rome can discipline bishops. And so they took it up with Rome in September. Cardinal DiNardo is the president of the U.S. bishops, kind of the spokesperson. There isn't a hierarchy with the U.S. bishops. It's not like Cardinal DiNardo has authority over the other bishops, but he was elected as president of the conference, and so he has some kind of representational powers among the bishops. So anyway, he took it up with the Holy Father, and eventually the Holy Father decided to hold what's called an extraordinary synod. He called together the president's of all of the bishops' conferences from around the world. So a, a hundred and some bishops, and then a number of other representatives. Uh, the cardinals, I think, are usually involved in that, and some other members of the Roman Curia, some other experts. And they came together in Rome for a couple of days to raise awareness to every country in the world that you need to deal with this issue. <laughs> you need to have stuff in place already. You need to have policies in place, number one. Number two, how do we deal with the question of bishops? Where do we need to revise the process in the Roman Curia? How do we make it easier for people to report so that we can protect not only, you know, certainly the children, the teenagers, and also the seminarians or anybody else? When, it, when a bishop is abusing somebody, uh, as well as when a priest is abusing somebody, that power differential makes it very hard for people to report, to talk about it, to be heard. And so we want to make it as easy as possible for people to report that. It's already hard enough to talk about it. And so, you know, Rome wanted to have the, the meeting, the discussions, the presentations, and then is involved in a process now of publishing some new law in the church to actually handle 
some of these cases and and uh, make it uh, make the church more even more child friendly and make the clergy even more accountable for their actions, both their own personal actions in terms of their own personal behavior, not abusing anybody, whether abusing power or sexual abuse or physical abuse or verbal abuse or any kind of abuse, that the clergy are really accountable. And then the transparency of the process, that that there's no covering up, that even a bishop who hasn't personally done anything isn't covering up for a priest or another bishop who has done something, that he's not sweeping anything under the rug, that everything that's uh, reported is adequately investigated and adjudicated and that the proper consequences are there for that. So that synod took place in February in Rome. And one of the big takeaways, and I'm kind of going to stop talking and let you ask a question or two, Joe, but uh, one of the big takeaways was a, was a fantastic closing address from Pope Francis. And if our listeners want to look at one thing from that synod, look at the closing address from Pope Francis. He addressed all of those bishops uh, over about a half an hour. It's about 28 minutes or so. Uh, and it is powerful because he recognized, first of all, it's a worldwide issue in every sector of society. And he identified using statistics from secular organizations like UNESCO and uh, the United Nations and a variety of these uh, organizations that keep track of things. He, using those statistics, he estimated that about 85 million children annually suffer from some kind of abuse. That's worldwide across every sector of society, 85 million children. And he recognized the horror of that. And he recognized the horror that that would ever happen in the church by a pastoral minister of any kind, let alone a bishop or a priest, the horror of that. And then he really, uh, he recognized that what's, what's driving this, what's driving it is evil, ultimately Satan, Satan is driving it. And we're becoming his instruments insofar as we protect it, cover it up, or participate in it. And so Pope Francis, as the spiritual leader for the Catholic Church, I might say for the whole world, as our Holy Father, really raised the banner of a frontal assault against Satan's attacks on children and making sure that none of the church's ministers are co-opted in that in any way. And then he said, not only are we going to take it on in the church, Let's take it on in the whole world. Let's eliminate the scourge of child abuse from the whole world. That's our goal. So that's really the, uh, I think, the, the really strong and definitive stance of the church kind of brought about and uh, by that meeting. And then, as I said, now there's a process in place to actually create some law, to create some structures, to fortify the church's efforts, and to really make a, a worldwide adjustment in our practices in order to take on the problem of child abuse in every sector of society, and certainly to drive it out definitively from the church. Sure. So there's a lot of, a lot you said right there, and a lot of importance. One of the things of, as you mentioned about that Pennsylvania grand jury is it kind of spotlighted on Pittsburgh, which is where I live. Um, and I definitely do remember whenever I was becoming a Eucharist minister, going through that training that you'd mentioned 
And at the time, I was a senior in high school. I was like, why are we doing this? Um, but, you know, seeing seeing the big picture as it unfolds a little bit with age makes sense. So the the first question I have is is when our bishop, who's in effect now, gave essentially a, a letter response. And for better or worse, it's been his only public-ish response um, was, a, was a written letter. And he highlighted that the majority of these events um, happened before, I think he said 1990. So the one thing I was always wondering is what changes were actually put in effect? And you just kind of outlined it here with the 2002 bishop in Dallas, that those were the rules that were put in. That's a good thing. As far as the bishops not having anyone to be able to monitor each other. And the analysis I have is think of them as governors of state. You know, you're not going to have the governor of Texas checking up on the governor of Florida or the governor of California. They're already working their own sections and they're equals. They can't just go, I don't like what that guy said. He needs to be gone. There needs to be some overriding. So that's why you would have that. And then I don't know if this was ever addressed or thought of, but when this issue has come up since that grand jury report, being in the center of it, there's been a conversation or two about it in my life. And one of the things that I had thought of that you're in a unique situation because you have an answer to it is in the diocese of Pittsburgh, basically every church had its own building where a priest lived in. And as the fact that the city is shrinking, um, there's a lot of buildings that had only one priest living in them. And my question for you is, as being in a priest who's in a group and living with a number of other priests, is there, not just in this arena, but in every other arena of your faith or any other arena of your faith, benefits of of living together in a group because that was one of the answers the bishop did in, in kind of the restructuring after everything was to have no longer like one priest by himself in a building, but to bring multiple priests in, in the buildings. So I wanted to see if that was actually a, an intelligent answer, or if that was just kind of window dressing, if you will. Well, let me just say, uh, First of all, that uh, Bishop Zubik actually has given a tremendous amount of public response to this um, in in press interviews, in listening sessions, and uh, he he certainly published that letter. He actually just came out with a pastoral letter, um, 20 or 30 pages, uh, outlining the diocese's kind of comprehensive approach to everything uh, after after the listening sessions, after taking that um, public uh making himself available publicly to respond to things and to hear people's suggestions and problems. Um, so I don't want to, he, he deserves a tremendous amount of credit. I, I'm, uh, he, he needs a better PR company then. Well, anyway, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't argue with that. I think, uh, yeah, he was a little bit, actually uh, perhaps a little bit too much in the news, uh, when it all came out initially, but, uh, but anyway, he has just published a, a pastoral letter as of Ash Wednesday, so just a, a week before our recording anyway. And uh, 
yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great. So, um, it's worth, it's worth reading, but, uh, in terms of, well, so a, a number of, of myths emerge again, I can't emphasize enough that child abuse is society wide. And so, uh, measures to there's there's a because priests do this weird thing in regard to our sexuality called celibacy, people immediately make this connection, which is a false connection, that celibacy has anything to do with child sexual abuse. As I said, the greatest incidence of child sexual abuse is in the family, <laughs> and so I had this really uh, poignantly when I was right in, after 2002 when there was a lot of attention on this. I was with my brother and his uh, three-year-old son, and the three of us were walking around. And I was, I was sensitive. I don't know if people were really looking, but I'm wearing a habit. I have a long beard. I look weird enough as it is. People maybe know that I'm celibate. And I thought people are probably looking at me thinking I'm a priest and that I'm a danger to this child. When statistically speaking, my brother is more of a danger to this child than I am. And so I just can't emphasize that enough, that there's no correlation. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Celibate priests are much less likely than the average man to be abusing children. And so uh, anyway, just to, to put that out there. And so measures to adjust the situation for priests are not really going to prevent child sexual abuse. I mean, it's not like a priest who's not predisposed to that. It's really a psychological disorder. Abusing children, certainly prepubescent children, is a psychological disorder that that doesn't respond well to treatment, in fact. And that's what we've discovered since 1980 and some of these efforts to reassign people or give them treatment after, you know, and reassign them after. You know, real pedophilia, which is sexual contact with prepubescent children, is not treatable by the, at least the, that's the going rate at this point. Now, there's a different issue in terms of it's it's really starts to bleed more into homosexuality. When you're talking about teenage children, they have the bodies of, of adult, they have adult bodies. They don't have adult emotional development, obviously, and that's why the law protects them. But they have adult bodies. It's a different, the the abuse of post-pubescent children is a, is a different thing. So... In terms of uh, somebody who might have some disordered sexuality, again, loneliness is not going to cause anybody to go and start having sex with children. You know, <laughs> so it's like just having priests living together is not going to help somebody who's actually has that kind of disorder. Now, it's it, it is probably healthier emotionally, psychologically. To, it is certainly healthier to have community. Now, just having priests living in the same rectory doesn't guarantee having community. That's another issue. Um, I, it's part of the challenge, in fact. I mean, guys who have who have been living alone for 30 years now being thrown together in rectories with other guys uh, and trying to work things out is not necessarily a formula for success. But... Um, but it's also good for certainly for accountability, you know, and, and 
but it really needs to create, there, there's a culture that needs to form now if we're going to start putting priests together in rectories again, which was always the case. Now, by the way, in 1950, every rectory had several priests, and there were more sexual abuse going on in 1950 than in 2002 when there were many rectories with only one priest. So again, there, there isn't a, a good corollary to that as a solution to a, a problem, but um, certainly there's something healthy about having people living more community. Well, that, that makes sense. So it's one of those things that um, the stats don't bear out your, your theory, um, which we don't look into enough as a country. Um, we just have, I've, I think this, so therefore it is. Um, so, okay. We, we went a little bit long on this episode here. We will continue the conversation in our next episode next week. So we do thank everyone for being with us here. We'll be with you again here next week.